Well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome back. This is the Essentials Truths of the Christian Faith class, if you have not been with us this whole time. So my name is Greg Dahl. If I have not met you previously, um, I serve as one of the elders here. Um, I'm going to just pray for our time this morning, and then we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you that we can gather together as the people of God to worship you and to lift high the name of Christ. And this morning, Lord, we will be considering um, many truths of Christ, of his redemption on our behalf, his continual work of mediation, um, his exaltation. Lord, may the glory of Christ shine brightly this morning. Lord, fix our gaze upon him, strengthen our eyes that we may see him as he is revealed in scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak only that which is true, guard me from error, and Lord, I pray that um, our time this morning would be a blessing to your people. And so we commit our time to you this morning, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're continuing in uh, that Essentials Truths of the Christian f uh, Faith class. Uh, again, our goal with this class is just to provide you with um, an introduction to these truths, to help form a foundation upon which um, you can begin to build and grow um, in your understanding of who God is. Obviously, we are covering a lot, so we're not able to develop uh, or dig deeply into any of these, but again, it's that 1,000-foot view um, to at least give you some exposure to these truths. Uh, God has revealed himself in his word, and he wants us to know him. So this morning, we'll be touching on four truths drawn from chapters 33 through 36 of, of the book. If you, if, if you don't have a copy of the book, this is what we're using. It's R.C. Sproul's book, The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. It's been out for, I don't know, probably 25 years or more now. You can still get copies of it, and I believe there's even uh, electronic copies of it uh, on Amazon. So this morning we're going to be um, touching on the ascension of Christ, Jesus Christ as mediator, the threefold office of Christ, and the titles of Jesus. So we'll begin with the ascension of Christ. I, I want to draw your attention to three aspects of Christ's ascension. The first is that Jesus ascended to a place. He ascended to a place. We know from Acts 1 that after Jesus' resurrection, he was on the earth for 40 days. Luke 24, verses 50 and 51 and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then uh, Luke expands on this a little bit. If you, if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to please turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. This is a similar account uh, as given by Luke in the, in the opening section. And when he, Jesus, had said these things to his disciples, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right, the significance of Christ's ascension is 
is often overlooked in the church today. We uh, have special celebrations to commemorate the birth of Christ, um, the death of Christ, and even the resurrection of Christ. But the ascension of Christ largely receives little or, or no mention. However, the ascension is profoundly important event in redemptive history because it marks the highest point of Christ's exaltation prior to his return at the second coming. Jesus himself described his departure from the earth as being better for us than if he were to remain. Right, listen to these words to his disciples from John chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then in verses 13 through 15, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And when Jesus first announced his departure to his disciples, they were understandably uh, saddened by the news. However, they later came to realize the importance and the significance of this great event. Back in uh, Acts chapter 1, we notice that Jesus departed in a cloud. Right? This is likely a reference to the Shekinah glory, uh, the cloud of God's glory. The Shekinah was not an ordinary cloud. It's a visible manifestation of God's glory. Therefore, the manner of Jesus' departure was not at all ordinary, but rather it was a supernatural, spectacular event. So much so that the disciples just stood there in awe, gazing up into heaven. Uh, Jesus' ascension is unique, right? It goes beyond Enoch. If you remember, Enoch walked with God and then he was not, right? He was just taken directly into heaven. Or the departure of Elijah, who departed in a chariot of fire. Um, Jesus' ascension refers to his going to a special place for a special purpose, right? And this is an important detail. Jesus ascended to a place. He didn't just suddenly disappear from his disciples, never to be seen by them again, but uh, he gradually ascended as they were watching. And then a cloud took him from their sight. And the angels immediately said he would come back in the same way in which he had gone into heaven. And we have to wonder if the disciples recalled Jesus' words to them as recorded in John chapter 14. He said to them then, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Right? The ascension of Jesus into heaven teaches us that heaven does exist as a place in the space-time universe. Now, of course, we can't now say exactly where heaven is. Scripture often pictures uh, people ascending up into heaven, as Jesus did and as Elijah did, or coming down from heaven, as the angels did in Jacob's dream. Uh, so we're justified in thinking as, of heaven as a, as a place uh, above the earth. But admittedly, the, the earth is round and it rotates. Um, 
So where heaven is, we're simply unable to say more precisely, but scripture, do, scripture doesn't tell us. But the repeated emphasis on the fact that Jesus went somewhere and the fact that the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God all indicate that there is clearly a localization of heaven in the space-time universe. So the second aspect of Christ's ascension is that Jesus received glory and honor that had previously not been his as the God-man. If you remember at the incarnation, he set aside his glory when he came to this earth and took on um, uh, man. Um, so he had set that aside. And so when he ascended into heaven, he received glory and honor and authority that had not been his as uh, one who was both God and man. So shortly before he died, Jesus prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's John 17, 5. So in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter said that Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God. And Paul declared that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Right? We see that in Philippians 2. So Christ is now in heaven with the angelic choirs singing praise to him with the words, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the third aspect of Christ's ascension that I want to draw your attention to this morning is that Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. This is an important detail. One specific aspect of his ascension into heaven and receiving honor was the fact that he sat down at the right hand of God. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would do just that. Uh, Psalm 110, the Messianic Psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when Christ ascended back into heaven, he received the fulfillment of that promise. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1.3. Right? This welcoming into the presence of God and sitting at God's right hand is a dramatic indication of the completion of Christ's work of redemption. Just like when we sit down at the completion of uh, a large task and we enjoy the satisfaction of uh, having accomplished it, so Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, visibly demonstrating that his work of redemption was complete. And an additional aspect of the authority that Christ received from the Father when he sat down at his right hand was the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit on the church. Right? We see that at the, uh, at the day of Pentecost. Peter said this in Acts chapter 2. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So we have two benefits imparted uh, to our faith by Christ's ascension. The first is that Jesus' ascension opened the way into the heavenly kingdom. Right? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Christ raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Right? That's amazing truth. Right? So sure is our salvation that we already possess it. He speaks as though we already possess it and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And second, as faith recognizes, it is to our great benefit that Christ resides with the Father. 
For having entered a sanctuary not made with hands, he continually appears before the Father's face as our advocate, as our intercessor, as Hebrews um, 7 teaches us. Uh, Coming on that truth, John Calvin said this. He said, Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. So just a, a few summary points here regarding the ascension. The ascension marks a critical point of Christ's exaltation in redemptive history. Uh, Christ departed in a cloud of glory. Um, Christ ascended to a specific place for a specific purpose. Uh, his coronation as King of Kings. And in his ascension, Christ entered his role as our heavenly high priest, and he was seated at the right hand of God, the seat of cosmic authority. And from his position at the right hand of God, Jesus authorized the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his church, and Jesus also serves as the advocate or defense attorney for his people. Any questions on that? I know we're moving quickly here. Um, So our second truth this morning is Jesus Christ as mediator. Right? Jesus Christ as mediator. A mediator right, is a go-between, right? He is one who intervenes between two persons or groups who are at variance, and he tries to, to reconcile those two, right? A, a mediator presupposes uh, some form of a disagreement, right? The two, the two sides are at odds, right? In modern times, medi- mediators are often used to assist settling disputes, we see this between uh, labor unions and management um, or in, in civil court cases as a means of seeking a, revel- a resolution uh, prior to actually having to go to trial. So similarly, in biblical terms, a mediator is one who intervenes between two, either to, to make or restore peace and fellowship. So as a, revol- as a result of the fall, uh, human beings are described in Scripture as being at enmity against God. Romans 5.10 explicitly describes um, us as enemies of God. So as a result of sin, there's an antagonism between us and God, which requires reconciliation in order for us to be able to enjoy fellowship with him. A mediator, someone who could reconcile man to God, is the great longing of the human heart, right? We were made by God and for God, and the natural man Even the natural man has an innate sense that things are not right between us and our creator. And if you need evidence of this, just look at the world's religions and look at the the idols. They all are, in one sense or another, an attempt to appease God or or in some way to get right with him. So although the term mediator is not found in the Old Testament, the concept is certainly there. In 1 Samuel Uh, Chapter 2, Samuel says this, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And then we see in Job, chapter 9, verse 33, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. Job's craving was for a mediator, is is the craving of all humanity. The soul was made for God, and Job recognizes that due to sin and suffering, man as he is 
cannot be just with God as he is, right? Christ meets that need, that existing need, right? To effect our reconciliation, God the Father has appointed his son to be our mediator, right? First Timothy 2, a very familiar verse, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In the incarnation, Jesus took upon himself human nature to accomplish the redemption of his people. Right? By his perfect obedience to the law, Christ satisfied the righteous demands of God's law, and he merited, on our behalf, eternal life. Right? This is what the theologians refer to as Christ's active obedience, his active obedience to the law, thereby meriting us his righteousness. And through his submission to the atoning death upon the cross, he satisfied the demands of God's wrath against us for our sin. Right? Christ's death was a substitutionary atonement. Right? This is what theologians refer to as Christ's passive obedience. His passive obedience. First uh, John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. That, read, that word propitiation means to appease God's wrath. So both actively and passively, Christ satisfied the divine requirements for reconciliation. He brought about a new covenant between God and man, and he continues daily to intercede for us as our high priest. Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Right? An effective mediator is one who is able to make peace between the estranged parties. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is the role that Jesus performed as our mediator. Right? The Apostle Paul declared that we have peace with God through Christ's work of reconciliation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. This mediating work of Christ is far superior to all other mediators. Moses was the, the mediator of the Old Covenant. He served as God's go-between, given the Israelites the law. Uh, but Jesus is superior to Moses, the author of Hebrews declares. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has much more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So just a, a few points of summary here. A mediator works to bring about reconciliation between estranged parties. Christ as the God-man reconciles us to the Father. Christ and the Father are agreed from eternity that Christ should be our mediator. And Christ's work of mediation is superior to prophets, angels, and Moses. Any questions about that? Quiet group. Uh, so the next truth this morning is the threefold office of Christ. The threefold office of Christ. There were three major offices among the people in the Old Testament. You had the prophet, the priest, and the king. These three offices were distinct and they were held by different people, right? The prophets spoke and wrote God's words to the people, right? The typical 
thing that you see in the Old Testament prophets is, thus says the Lord, right? He spoke, he was God's spokesman to his people. And then the priest, the priest offered sacrifice, prayers, and praises on behalf of the people to God. And then the king, the king ruled over the people as God's representative, right? These three offices foreshadowed Christ's own work in different ways, right? John Calvin was the first theologian to apply these um, three categories to the work of Christ as a, as a way of, of helping us to understand various, various aspects of Christ's work. So we'll look at that first one, Christ as prophet. Christ as prophet. Um, again, the role of a prophet was to speak God's words to the people. Moses was, a, was the first prophet, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And after Moses, there was a succession of uh, prophets, other prophets who spoke and wrote God's words. But Moses predicted that sometime another prophet like himself would appear. This prophecy was recorded for us in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Among the people in Jesus' day, there was a great expectation that the prophet like Moses would come. After Jesus had multiplied the loaves and the fish, we saw this not that long ago in, um, in the Gospel of John, some of the people exclaimed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, right? They're referring to the prophet that Moses had predicted would come. And then in Acts 3, Peter specifically identified Christ as the prophet predicted by Moses by quoting the passage from Deuteronomy 18. So Jesus indeed is the prophet predicted by Moses, yet he is far greater than Moses or any of the other Old Testament prophets in, in two ways. One, he's the one about whom the Old Testament prophecies were made. Right? When Jesus spoke with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says he took them through the entire Old Testament, showing them how the prophecies all pointed to him. And then secondly, Jesus was not merely a messenger or revelation from God, but he himself was the source of revelation from God. He spoke on his own authority as the eternal word of God in the flesh. He was the supreme prophet. And rather than saying like the Old Testament prophets did, thus says the Lord, Jesus said, but I say to you, right? He spoke on his own authority. So that's Jesus's prophet, um, the second office is priest, Christ as priest. Again, in the Old Testament, the priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and praises to God on behalf of the people. And in doing so, they sanctified the people or made them acceptable to come into God's presence, albeit in a, in a limited way during the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus becomes our great high priest. Right? This theme is developed extensively in the letter to the Hebrews, where we find that Jesus functions as a priest in three ways. The first is that Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice that he offered was not the blood of animals such as bulls and goats. Instead, Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Uh, chapter 9, verse 26, 
says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His death upon the cross was a sacrifice for sin. He was both the offering and the offerer. The Old Testament priests offered sacrifices regularly, but Jesus offered a sacrifice of everlasting value. This was a completed and final sacrifice once for all time, never to be repeated again, which is a theme that is frequently emphasized in the book of Hebrews. This is really one of the starkest differences between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism in the Mass is a repeated sacrifice. that They teach that the Mass is a continual sacrifice for sins, whereas Scripture clearly teaches us that it was a once for all time, never to be repeated again. They clearly diminish Christ's sacrifice in their teaching. So in the second way he functions as a priest is that Jesus continually brings us near to God. The Old Testament priests not only offered sacrifices, but also in a representative way, they came into the presence of God from time to time on behalf of the people. But Jesus does much more than that. As our high priest, he continually leads us into God's presence so that we may no longer have need of a Jerusalem temple or a special priesthood to stand between us and God. At his ascension, Jesus went into the heavenly temple, into the very presence of God, and, and as we saw previously, sat down at his right hand. This means that we have a far greater privilege than those who lived during the Old Testament period. Uh, Jesus has opened the way to access to God so that we can continually draw near into God's presence without fear, but with confidence. So Jesus not only offered a a perfect sacrifice for sins and he continually brings us near to God, he also continually prays for us. He continually prays for us. One other priestly function in the Old Testament was to pray. The priest was to pray on behalf of the people. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus also fulfills this function. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The thought that Jesus is continually praying for us should give us great encouragement, right? He always prays for us according to the Father's will so we can know that his requests will be granted. So that's Christ as prophet and priest. And finally, his third role is Christ the King. In the Old Testament, the king had authority to rule over the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus was born as king of the Jews, as we see in Matthew 2. But he notably refused any attempt by the people to make him an an, an earthly king with political and and or military power. At his sham of a trial, he told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Nevertheless, Jesus did have a kingdom, right? The the arrival of which he announced in his preaching repeatedly. He is, in fact, the true king of the new people of God. And after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus was given by God the Father far greater authority over the church and over the universe. 
that God raised him up and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So uh, in the Old Testament, the mediating offices of prophet, priest, and king were held by separate individuals. When Christ came, we saw the fulfillment of these three roles in one person. Jesus alone supremely holds all three offices. Jesus fulfilled that messianic prophecy of Psalm 110. So just a, a few points of summary here. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and was himself a prophet. Jesus was both priest and sacrifice. As priest, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sins. And Jesus is the anointed king of all kings and Lord of all lords. Any questions about that one? Okay. I heard it said that um, David also acted in priestly, prophet, and kingly like ways. Like obviously he was the king, but I've heard that said as, as well about him. But that it was imperfect. Obviously. His sons were prophets. Our were, were on priests. Mm-hmm. David's sons were uh, yeah. in the palace. But. Well, David was not from the Aaronic line, you right? He was not. But I, I, that's because of, um, I think, Messianic typology, that there needed to be a dimension of David that was priest because he was a typology of Christ who was priest. And so there were, I mean, in, in his household, his sons did serve as priests. And that's probably part of that typology. I don't. That's how, that's how, that's how it's been explained to me before. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I don't. I don't believe that that's anywhere in Scripture where we see David's no, you, you, you'll look, sons. You'll find it. You'll find it. If okay. You for it. His, his sons did serve as priests. I've taught for I've taught First and Second Samuel. So. Okay. So then, the last truth we're going to consider this morning are the titles of Jesus. All right, the titles of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was given more titles than any other person in history. Just a, a brief sampling includes the following, Christ, Lord, Son of Man, Savior, Son of David, Great High Priest, Son of God, Alpha and Omega, Master, Teacher, Righteousness, Prophet, Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley, Advocate, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, and the Second Adam. However, the the chief titles given to Jesus are these, Christ, Lord, Son of Man, and the Logos. And we're going to look briefly at each of those. The title of Christ. The title of Christ is so often given to Jesus that people often mistake it for his last name. It's not a name, but rather it's a a title that refers to his position as Messiah. Uh, That word Christos in the Greek uh, that we, we get our English word Christ, is used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean anointed one, anointed one. Right? In the Old Testament, the concept of the, the promised Messiah would be uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit was a, was a complex idea and obviously was not fully understood. Consequently, the Jews did not all have the same uh, idea or understanding of who the Messiah would be, what he would be like. 
Right? One concept was that he would be a king, that he would be the anointed son of David who would restore the falling kingdom of David. Right? This aspect greatly excited the Jews and, and fanned the flames for their hope for a political ruler, a political deliverer who would free them from the bondage of Rome. Uh, but the Messiah was also called to be the servant of God, indeed the suffering servant spoken of um, in Isaiah's prophecy. These two concepts of the Messiah seem virtually impossible to unite in one person, though in Jesus they obviously were. Uh, and maybe even less clear in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be a, a heavenly being. It would be uniquely related to God the Father. So in addition to the title of Christ, Jesus is also known as Lord. Lord, this is the, the second most frequently used title for Jesus in the New Testament, and it's critical to our understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, the term Lord is used in three distinct ways in the New Testament. The first is as a common uh, or uh, form of, of polite address, similar to how we would use the word sir. Uh, the second way that it was used was to refer to a slave owner or master. And then the third usage is the imperial usage, referring to someone who is sovereign. All right, so in the first century, the Roman emperors demanded a loyalty oath from their subjects, right? The people were required to uh, confess the formula, Caesar is Lord, right? Many Christians were martyred for refusing to comply with that, uh, that demand. So instead, they proclaimed the first Christian creed, Jesus is Lord. But to call Jesus Lord was radical, uh, not only from a Roman standpoint, but especially from a Jewish standpoint, for it is the title given to God himself in the Old Testament. Right? The title Lord was bestowed upon Jesus by God the Father. It is the name that is above every name. Paul speaks again of in Philippians 2, the name before which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in addition to the titles of Christ and Lord, Jesus was also known as the Son of Man. Right? The Son of Man. This is one of the more fascinating titles given to Jesus and perhaps the one most frequently misunderstood because the church confesses the dual nature of Christ, that he was truly God and truly man, and because the Bible describes Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God, it's tempting to assume that the title Son of Man refers to his humanity and the title Son of God refers to his deity. However, that's not exactly the case. Um, but the title Son of Man includes an element of humanity. Its primary reference is to Jesus' divine nature. Right? The title Son of God also includes a reference to his deity, but its primary focus is, is on Jesus' obedience as a son. Although the title of the Son of Man ranks third in terms of frequency and, and usage of the New Testament, it is by far the most frequently used by Jesus to refer to himself. Right? And the, the importance of this title is drawn from the prophet Daniel's use of it in Daniel chapter 7. Right there, Son of Man clearly refers to a heavenly being who functions in the role as cosmic judge. Right? Jesus' use of this title is a bold claim of divine authority when he calls himself the Son of Man. You might be tempted to think that it was um, uh, a humble title that he applied to himself, but... In reality, it was a bold claim of his divine authority. For example, in Mark 2, Jesus claimed that 
the Son of Man had authority to forgive sins. Right? That is a divine prerogative to forgive sins. And he also says later in that chapter that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Right? Again, divine authority, divine prerogative. Right? And Jesus uses this title uh, was a bold claim to his divine authority. So in addition to the titles of Christ, Lord, and the Son of Man, Jesus also was known as the Logos. The Logos. This title comes from the prologue of John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this verse, the Logos is both distinguished from God and identified with God. The paradox uh, had great influence on the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, where the Logos is seen as the second person of the Trinity. The Logos differs in person from the Father, but is one in essence with the Father. Um, Just a a brief background on on the biggical usage of, of the word Logos. It's referred to, it's used to refer to the words of speech, or sayings, as well as to the, the mental faculty of thinking and reasoning and, and meditating. So in John, the Logos denotes that Jesus is the personal wisdom and power of God in union with God. Right? He's, the, he's the minister of creation, and he's the cause of all the world's life. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Right? And it was this preexistent Logos who, for the purpose of procuring man's salvation, became flesh and dwelt among his people as the God-man. So just a a few points of summary. Messiah means anointed one and is used as a title for Jesus to signify his role as both king and suffering servant. Messiah is the title frequently used for Jesus. Lord is the second most frequently used title for Jesus and refers to his supreme authority as sovereign of the universe. And son of man is the title Jesus used most often to refer to himself. The title primarily refers, again, to his role as judge of the whole cosmos. And then the title Logos has a a rich heritage in both the the Hebrew and Greek culture. Jesus is the Logos, the creator of the universe, the ultimate reality behind the universe, and the one who is constantly sustaining, upholding all things. So, any questions? Got a few minutes left. Yes, sir. The the quotation which... 2 Samuel 8, 18. That's, uh, Can you read it for us? David, well, let me see. Let's, um, let me get to it now. I've got it right here. It says, Ben and I, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Belphites, and David's sons were chief ministers, is what my version says. But then it references back to Exodus as priests. So then another place it says they were You have to look at the context of that word and how it might be used in other yeah. places because it could. Well, the word that's used is Kohan. Which is, is what? I think the word that's used is Kohan, which is the Hebrew word for priest. Okay. Interesting. I, yeah, I'd want to dig into that further. Um, doesn't necessarily mean um, that they served as priests in the temple. Right? No, they could no, have been in the, in the palace. 
yeah, I, I, I would agree with that then in that sense. Yeah. Any other questions, comments? I know that that's a that's a lot. All right, well, let me just pray for our time and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that you have so clearly revealed yourself in. And Lord, we confess that there are uh, many things in there that um, we need help from you and from your spirit to, to understand and to comprehend. Um, pray that um, you would increase our understanding, uh, that we might worship you as you have revealed yourself, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray for our worship service to follow, that uh, you would even now begin to prepare our hearts and our minds to come into your presence, to uh, worship and lift high the name of Christ. Pray that all that is said and done here this morning would be to his honor and his glory. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.